This morning's text is one about hope, Advent hope, a hope not completely unsimilar to the hope that we have that the acolytes will get the candles lit, especially when they are so tall and high above. You did a great job. We will make it easier for you next week. I also never know if there'll be matches in the acolyte uh, wreath waiting for the acolyte lighters. And so, hoping against hope, there they were. Thank you for that. For Advent is above all a season of hope. This morning's text comes in what is known as Jeremiah's Little Book of Comfort. It is written after Jeremiah has hammered the people of Israel for 29 chapters about not living up to God's will for them, about not living through justice and righteousness, and then proclaiming that if they don't, there would be a cost to pay, seeing that cost being paid when the Babylonian Empire marched in and burned the temple and Jerusalem to the ground and sent all of the residents into exile. Then, in these chapters, 30 through 33, after that exile, after the loss and grief of that, Jeremiah lifts up words of great hope. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place that is waste, without human beings or animals, and in all its towns there shall again be pasture for shepherds resting their flocks, In the towns of the hill country, the places around Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Each Sunday in Advent has its own theme that goes with it, hope, love, joy, and peace. And it begins with hope because that is where everything begins. That is where we begin when we, if we wake up in the morning and get out of bed and put our clothes on and get into life, we do so because there is some modicum of hope that gets us up and gets us going. We start with hope because everything does, even God. When God created the heavens and the earth, as the story goes, my sense is that God did so out of of a universal cosmic hope for all creation, that we would experience God's love, and that we as human beings and as all the animals of the creation would come to know our place. 
Hope enables us not only to keep going, but also to start over when there seemingly is no place to go. I remember working with a young couple in Atlanta long ago whose marriage was teetering. They came to see me after visiting the church a couple of times. They had been married for two years, and they discovered that they were like oil and water. They were so infatuated and infatuated and full of hope and love for each other when they first met that they failed to see each other as they really were. They didn't see the truth about themselves until they started living together. Actually, it started during the wedding planning when they began to see how different they were, disagreeing over every single decision who could be invited, where did they have to sit, what the meal was going to be, and so forth, that it then went into their wedding when they continued arguing even to the way you're supposed to stack the flatware in the dishwasher. The thing was that they were not so much angry with each other, they didn't so much blame each other as they were disappointed in themselves for not seeing the other as they truly were. I asked them, do you want to get a divorce? And sincerely they said, no. I was surprised by that because almost all the time that couples come to see the pastor, at least my experience, about issues of marriage, the decision has already been made, the lawyer has already been hired It may seem like we need help, but underneath it all, it's a fait accompli. And I always have the sense that they come mostly for forgiveness rather than reconciliation. But this couple wanted more than that. I met with them two times and recommended a pastoral counselor. They later joined the church. That was three children, and 23 years ago. They phoned me on their 20th anniversary, three years ago, to thank me for giving them hope when they thought there was none. It was when you told us, they said, that we were in exactly the right place in our marriage, at that place of disappointment, and at that place when our expectations had been dissolved. When you told us that real marriage starts now at that disappointment place. When we discovered that those expectations were way too lofty and unrealistic. That only after the disappointment, you said, does love really start. Strangely, that gave us hope. We learned to lower our expectations for each other and started working on changing ourselves rather than the other. And when we started seeing the differences in ourselves, we discovered that that's exactly why we got married in the first place, because we were not the same and we needed each other's differences. Marriage is not easy, they ended, but thank you for giving us hope in every case. 
Now, I would like to say that I'm always able to offer that in pastoral counseling situations, but that is not the case. In this case, it worked particularly well, maybe because they were in the right place to receive it and I was in the right place to give it. Regardless, their paradigm, I think, serves as a classic example of what life is all about. Real hope, capital H hope, real hope, God hope, is found when our false little h hopes go up in smoke, when our expectations are dashed. Then something new, capital H hope, becomes real to us. As Jesus said, you cannot put new wine in old wine skins. Now this seems especially true when it comes to our hope and faith in God. Most of us, I suspect, grew up with our own expectations of who God is and what God will do for us. If we commit ourselves to God, confess our faith in God, if we go to church, if we give a certain amount of money to church and to other good causes, then God will take care of us and we will be protected from suffering. But when suffering happens, which inevitably it will, our hope, our little H hope in God goes up in smoke because God didn't meet my expectations. Then the choice is either a divorce from God and our faith or hand our lives over to a big H hope and a big F faith that is more real. To claim some resilience in ourselves, to discover that that is in fact the very beginning of something brand new. This is one of the main underlying themes in the Bible. For Christians, it is the foundational story upon which we rest our whole faith and hope. The disciples thought he was the one to redeem Israel, using John the Baptist's words. We thought you were the one. But when it became clear at that last week that he was not going to bring about the redemption of Israel the same way King David had, and he was crucified, they lost all hope and all of their expectations were gone. Bam! Out of that, on Sunday morning at early dawn, a new day was coming forth. They discovered something that was way beyond anything they could expect, outside anything they had ever experienced, and what they discovered was resurrection. A new day and a new hope. Or the Old Covenant, the Old Testament's story is the same. Israel had expected that if they built the temple and Jerusalem maintained uh, security and they kept that temple that God would always be present there in the Holy of Holies and that God would always protect the people of Israel the way God had promised in the Davidic covenant. That was their expectation. Yet when the Babylonian armies marched in and burned it to the ground, that all went up in smoke and they were left with absolutely nothing left to stand on as they were exiled into Babylon and turned into slaves. It's the same story. 
That's why this morning's passage is so powerful. At their darkest point, when they were absolutely hopeless, Jeremiah stands up and proclaims, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to grow up out of David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, all of Judah and all of Jerusalem will be safe and secure. And in this, the name by which he will be called, it will be heard, the Lord is our righteousness. A completely unexpected hope in the midst of absolute hopelessness and despair. And these two foundational stories are the stories that we base our own lives and faith and hope on. They've done studies, you know, that those who are able to endure and face hardship and loss and trauma are those who live by a story greater than the immediate story of their trauma. That there is a larger story, a meta story of God's hope and God's future in their life, even though they face such loss. If you get stuck in your own particular story, you are hopeless. But if you have a story greater than that, these two stories, it is the ground of healing. I know that for some people, what I'm saying may not be always heard as good news. A part of each of us hopes that things will never change because everything right now is so good. It's hunky-dory, as we say. The kids are at the right age. The job's going well. Marriage seems to be okay, going pretty well. But deep down, we all know better. Keeping things the same is not hope so much as conservation and clutching and control. The truth is that everything changes. Just look into the mirror every single day. Things come and go. Sickness and health. Children, marriages, nations rise and fall. Some days are good. Some days are awful. But nothing ever stays the same. Nothing. Sooner or later, the big bad wolf will come and blow our false hope house of cards down, and then what? The Bible tells us, now this is where and when our real hope is born, and where and when we truly learn to trust and hope in God. There's been a lot of hand-wringing in the last few years about the state of the Presbyterian Church USA, about whether we as a denomination or any mainline denomination for that matter will continue to, to survive. There have been many drumbeats of despair heard about these denominational churches. And I, and I know that some of the evidence helps support that. We've lost so many members, the drill goes, our worship attendance is down, we're just relics of a dead past. Maybe so. If we expect to return to the way we were in the 1950s, then despair, I'm afraid, will be our result. 
But maybe God is doing something brand new here. Maybe there is more hope among us than we thought. This church grew up, began in the 1910s, facing the First World War, the roaring 20s, the darkness of depression, the incredible fear and anxiety and loss and grief of World War II, as did most of the mainline churches. And they made it through. These windows were envisioned and paid for during World War II in one of the darkest times of our nation's life as an act of incredible hope and future. This sense of hopeful optimism has helped build this church as well as many of the great institutions in our country, education and finance and government, yes, government, law and religion, and they quickly expanded after World War II with this optimistic foundation. We generally trusted those in authority back then and hoped that technology would continue to save us from too much work and from too much threat and eventually from sickness and death. But those hopes started to fade when we found ourselves hiding under our school desks at the risk of a mushroom cloud. And that authority started to go when Joseph McCarthy started hunting down everyone who might remotely be connected to communism. And then when President Kennedy was assassinated, Camelot disappeared. We discovered that our leadership had lied to us about a war in Vietnam and protesters against that war were beaten in Chicago and shot in Kent State, and cities were being burned in protests against racism. Hope in our institutions and those in authority began to dwindle while distrust and cynicism only grew. The age of rampant individualism took its root The me generation was born, I was a part of it, and each of us became the only authority that mattered. We lost our collective sense of morality and our civic mindedness and our bearings. Rotary clubs and churches were no longer well attended and government became a four-letter word. Smarter people than I, sociologists, historians, say that that was the beginning of the end for modernity, the enlightened age of modernity. Our hope in progress getting better and better in every way according to how much knowledge we can have. Still, there was a life support called technology. In the 60s at the World's Fair, the new appliances promised to do away with all housework. Picture phones, can you imagine such a thing? Flying cars and this new thing called a computer would save us. We soon discovered the unintended consequences of technology, the new super weapons that were being produced, as well as the socially destructive distraction that technology gives us. The Reagan era offered some life support to the modern age, but it was almost over and basically just palliative. 
It went into a coma in the 1990s and finally breathed its last, I think, on 9-11-2001. Our institutions, technology, and knowledge were not going to save us. Modernity was dead. In the meantime, they say, post-modernity was being born. It's based on the awareness that things are not so clear-cut, so not, not so atomistic, not so uh, uh, objective, uh, uh, not so absolute, that every change could be both a good and bad at the same time. What we thought was objective truth was now turning out to be relative according to how one perceived it. Quantum mechanics and chaos theory was born to take the place of the old physics of atomistic thought. And while it was clear that institutions needed to be overhauled, especially the government, education, medicine, law, the financial world, and the church needed a new beingness. There were unintended consequences for this new age, too. Kids became more anxious because in this age of rampant individualism, they were given too many choices to make and too much responsibility, which only adds to their anxiety. Soon they grew more dependent on their parents and college loans to get by. Real community and face-to-face -face relationships were giving way to virtual communities on the web. Authority gave way to the new catchword of authenticity. And truth came not from those in power, but from the conversations that we have with a thousand or two of our closest friends online. Everyone now had a voice, a vote, everyone could weigh in. Everything was now relative according to each person's sense of what is right and wrong, as individual as the tattoos that were chosen to stamp upon the skin. Guess what, sociologists are now saying? This is the age of rampant individualism, and it's too starting to come to an end. Individualism, institutionalism now gone. What's left? We could wring our hands or we could open ourselves up to a new world order, something we don't even yet know or see or understand. The assurance of things uh, hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen, and I tell you this personally, I have more hope for us now than I have since I can remember. Anxiety is high. Stress is out the wazoo. We are terrified by terrorism. Yet this newest generation, the millennials, are hopeful about the future, and that makes us hopeful too. They are looking for meaning and spirituality and ready to go to work. Something new is being born. Something new, by God's grace, is taking shape. Evidenced, I think, by the overreaction of the ultra-conservative radicals so threatened by this newness that they are doing everything they can to destroy anything that remotely resembles new. Trying to take us back to 19, excuse me, to 1300. So with all this, the question lingers, what is the world coming to? 
But I think the better question for us in Advent is this. What is coming into the world? What new thing wrought by God is being born, the advent of which is even now with us? This is the question of hope we must live into. And as we at Riverside begin our process of asking that question of who we are and whose we are and what we're supposed to do and with whom we're supposed to do it during our dreams for Riverside strategic planning, these These are the questions that we have to ask. This primary question, what is coming into the world, into our midst, that will guide us into a future that is God's? A new branch will spring up, Jeremiah proclaims, and a new name will be given. By God's hand, a new hope with a new start is before us. It's what should get us up in the morning to begin with and face the day ahead, whatever it may bring. Hope. It is the ground of life. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.